Good morning. I just want to draw to close our series on Nehemiah. With, with any of these parts of this series, I'd say this each week, but if you've missed any, I'd encourage you to catch up. But if I could outlay, give an overview of the theme of Nehemiah that we could take and apply, and I said it before, it'd be this, that those that love God and his kingdom, they will study the Bible, they will pray, and they will do everything they can to advance the gospel and to encourage others to do the same. I hope you've grasped that. I have. It's hit me. It's reframed me as we start to um, repair and prepare for the next steps of a faith journey together as a church. You know, in a time and a season where many will feel confused about their part or their role in the body of the church, we gain from Nehemiah just a wider view and we come to see not only our need for each other, but also our need to have hearts that are postured towards serving the city that we're in. Do you know in the Bible the word disciple is used 269 times and yet the word Christian is used only three times. The journey that we're on is one of becoming disciples. It's a journey of transformation. We, we see that modelled so well in the book of Nehemiah. Only God can be the person who brings lasting change, lasting change in us and lasting change in the people and the city that we love. To, to be changed, we need to understand the transformation process. There's three parts to the salvation process, which I think leaders to the transformation process. But let me, let me just explain them to you. I have been saved. I am being saved. One day I will be saved. Let me just break that down and let's consider each. I have been saved. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says this, God saved you by grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this, for it is a gift from God. I am being saved. Philippians 2 12, dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you and now that I'm away it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. I am being saved and then also one day I will be saved. 1 Peter 1 5 says this, and through your faith God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. If there are three points, three parts to this salvation process, I would say it's the same with the transformation process. See, Romans 12, 2 says this, don't copy the behaviours and customs of this world. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. We're engaged in a transformation process. You have been changed and yet you are being changed. 2 Corinthians 3.18 So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glorious image. I have and I am being transformed and yet one day I will be completely transformed. Philippians 3.20 but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our saviour. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring under so bring everything under his control. I have been transformed I am being transformed and one day I will be 
transformed. Does that make sense? Do, did you see what I'm saying with that? Philippians 1 verse 6, and I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Transformation is a process. 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we, we, we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. What unites all three parts of this process is Jesus. It's our relationship with Jesus. When you could ask, and you probably are asking, why, why have I just shared all of that? Well, what if, what if the transformation that is happening in us individually is multiplied and applied to a community? Because I believe that's what Jesus wants to do. He tells a story that relates to this. In Matthew 13, 33, he said this. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast of a woman used to make bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeates every part of the dough. What makes the bread rise is the yeast. The magical difference is the yeast cells as they begin to be multiplied when they're placed in the warm dough. The small insignificant pack of yeast when blended into the dough causes it to rise. As the yeast is worked into the dough and the yeast multiplies it influences every part of the dough making the entire thing rise. A church that chooses to involve itself to spend itself on and in the life of its community through acts of love and service take on the transformation characteristics of the yeast the key to the change isn't the length of time it takes it's the church's involvement in the community the presence of yeast will always cause the dough to rise a church spent on the community with good works and good news will always see the, the community transformed into something new. In the same way that we're transformed personally, I have been changed, I am being changed, I will be changed. The same thing starts to happen to a community when we carry it in us. Because light permeates, the salt preserves, but it's the yeast that transforms. It's led, it's activated, it grows, it develops in a community as a result of individual lives being transformed. How do we see a community transformed? We see it by being transformed ourselves and then giving everything we've got to serve others. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ Jesus has become a new person. The old life has gone and new life has begun. We come into an encounter with Jesus that changes our lives, that propels us to bring change to the lives of others. Serving others transforms and, trans and changes the very people we're serving and it changes us in the process. Hopefully, I, I, I hope you, you grow and you benefit from times like this, from talks like this. I hope that you find a small group and a community of people in the life of this church to walk out your discipleship alongside through the highs and lows of life. All of that is good. It's wonderful. It's right. And I hope and I long for it for you. But I don't believe 
we grow beyond a certain point, if we don't grasp and it isn't activated in us what it is to serve others. You know, I read a moment ago, Ephesians 2 verse 8, it said, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. We are not saved by good works. We're saved through grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. But we are saved and we are freed to do the good works that Christ prepared for us to do. Verse 10 continues, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago so that we can do the good things. Everything points to doing something. You know, remember the first week we looked at Nehemiah. What I love, one of the most things about Nehemiah is he doesn't just talk about it. He works out how he's going to do it and then he gets on doing it. Let's rebuild the wall. You know, every helpful resource that God gives us helps us to do something. Ephesians 4.11 talks about leaders who equip us to do. 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about God's word equips us to do. Hebrews 10.24 talks about the body of Christ which encourages us to do. 1 Peter 4.10 talks about us having spiritual gifts to empower us to do. Do you see what I'm saying? We could kind of go on and on and on. But I guess what I'm trying to say is we're supposed to do something. Jesus didn't just call you out of something. He called you into something. I um, didn't give the joy and the delight and the fulfillment of being in the fire service up just to sit around and wait for Jesus to return. You know, we, we're meant to do something. Our, our calling and our pulling towards Jesus, whatever that looks like, however you're transformed in that process, whatever the, 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 the cost or the discipleship journey is a calling into doing something. John Wimber, uh, shortly after he gave his life to Jesus, he walked into a church and the interaction he had at that time has become quite a well-known story. But if you haven't heard it, after three weeks of being in that church and not having seen any miracles done that he'd read about in the Bible, he goes up to one of the leaders and he says, well, when are they, when are they going to do it? And the leader says, well, do what? And Wimber was like, the stuff, you know, when are we going to do the stuff? And the leader's like, what stuff? And he's, he's a bit exasperated. He's like, the, the stuff in the Bible, when are we going to do the stuff? And... Um, He's like, what, what do you mean? And he's like, well, when are we going to multiply the the loaves and the fish and feed the hungry and all of that stuff? When do we actually do that? And the penny dropped for the leader that he was talking to. He said, oh, we don't, we don't do that. We believe in it and we pray for it, but we don't do it. And uh, Wimmer obviously was totally disappointed. He's, he's like, you don't, you don't understand. I gave up drugs for this. You know, the intuition goes to the heart of one of the most important distinctives I would say of the value that we're a movement of people that want to learn to live like Jesus lived not simply believe what he believed we don't just want to believe what he believed of course we want to believe it but not just that we also want to do what he did and we don't want this to be limited to churchy people 
you know, to like leaders or church leaders, what others might call clergy. We believe that everybody can learn to live the kind of life that Jesus did, that we all get to do the stuff. We get to get our hands dirty. Nobody said that would be easy. Nobody said that would come uh, without a cost. It will certainly not always be easy and will certainly come with a cost. But we're going to continue risking, serving and reaching out to love the last, the lost and the least. What's going on in the final part of this um, book in Nehemiah? Well, God is building churches made up of seemingly um, insignificant people who have normal lives and normal problems. Do you know what God is doing in the world today? Do you know what he intends to do and how he intends to outwork his purposes? What he's doing in the world today is building churches and churches that are made up of seemingly insignificant people who have normal lives and normal problems. What we've seen so far in the book of Nehemiah in previous weeks is that he makes a commitment to rebuild the wall, to read the Torah, that they would confess their sins, that they would rehearse the mercy of God, that they would renew their com- their covenant to keep their covenant with God. And now we're going to see them return. They return to repopulate the city and to dedicate the wall. Let's have a quick read of it if you're not familiar with it. It says this in Nehemiah chapter 11 starting at verse 2. The leaders of the people were living in Jerusalem, the holy city. A tenth of the people from the other towns of Judah and Benjamin were chosen by sacred lots to live there too, while the rest stayed where they were. <coughs> and the people commended everyone who volunteered to resettle in Jerusalem. This honestly is a fascinating couple of verses. They had to draw lots because they didn't want to live there. It was a dangerous place to live in Jerusalem. You know, if an army came, all the attention would be placed on that walled city. They wouldn't bother with the um, <coughs> with the with the scattered homes in the hills surrounding it. They'd focus on the where the resources were and where the people of influence were. Jerusalem would be the point of attack. And if also on top of that, if you lived in Jerusalem, you'd have less land. And that was a time and in a world where land was so necessary for flocks and herds. So living in Jerusalem jeopardised your security and it diminished your prosperity in terms of real estate. So they drew lots as to who would have to do it. The irony of the whole thing is if you read verse 1, it tells us that Jerusalem was the holy city, the city where, where, where God had set his name. Can I just pull out a few parallels before we go any further to live in an area where the cost and restrictions of covid would continually hit harder than others for so many reasons but naming just one poverty what about if rather than live close to where your family might live and the safety and the security and the comfort that can come for that what about rather than have the nice cozy house by the coast what about rather than have the house in the area that you choose and maybe realize that you've had to downsize or downgrade your plans because all you can afford is a rented house or that you only have a yarden rather than a garden that the house that you're in maybe has mold that the house that you live in you have to be careful about walking home to at night because it is not a safe or comfortable area that maybe the house is inconvenient with the neighbors around you who played loud music through the night that the area where 
the schools are where you live cause you to worry about the things that your children might be exposed to, that the job that you do in the city that you're in to pay the bills to be part of the community and the church and the belief of what God has called you to do causes you to sit in endless amounts of congestion or pay greater fees on public transport or not necessarily even find the job satisfaction that your family and friends might want for you or you yourself in dreams in your heart would even have with career progression to embark on a highly um, sorry to to find yourself in a church and a community that would have a heart to serve the city in a way that at times is costly and inconvenient to then embark on a highly ambitious building renovation that would have very little if any benefit for the church community because they would be seeking to serve the needs of the city first and foremost and then when you say see others not paying such a high price in other settings and contexts that may play heavy on your heart i am not in any way trying to play or start playing violins for any of us but like in verse 2 i want to praise you and i want to encourage you because it said and the people commended everyone who volunteered to resettle in jerusalem the people who willingly gave themselves to live in Jerusalem were put in God's programme over individual desires. Jerusalem, in that context, was about the kingdom of God. Jerusalem was where God was at work in the world as unimpressive and as dangerous as that might have seemed or been they were a people devoted to Yahweh and pursuing God's kingdom and the worship of God in Jerusalem rather than their own safety security or prosperity would we be a people today who were willing to offer to do what is less and less advantageous for ourselves in order to pursue the kingdom of God? Are there ways in our everyday lives that we could seek to live <coughs> in the Jerusalem equivalent, to love the neighbour that no one else would love, to befriend the work colleague that is the centre of everybody else's gossip, to serve the needs of somebody that can't match what you give to them in return and will potentially offer you nothing in return and not even a thank you. The people of Jerusalem voluntarily did the unglamorous thing. They served the church and they served the city with everything within them and they laid down their lives for it. Would it be that we have been changed, that we have been changed, that we are being changed and that we will, we will be changed into the likeness of Jesus, that the yeast that we carry would infect all of the dough of the city and cause it to rise, that we would start to see our workplace, our home and the street that we're on, that we'd start to see it rise because you're on it and in it, because we're in it and on it. You know, the record of the people in Nehemiah chapter um, 11 verse 2 is a record of an ancient pre-Christ Christ-likeness. These guys are starting to become like Christ even before him. Jesus is the supreme example of the one who left all that was advantageous to himself and went to the place that was not pleasant for him that was not exciting for him, that held no pleasure for him and that ultimately got him crucified. To follow 
Jesus is to follow him in laying down our lives for the benefit of others as he did. We want to embrace Christ-likeness. We want to recognise Christ-likeness. We want to celebrate Christ-likeness. That's what makes it such a joy and a delight to be part of this church in this city because there are so many people who are Christ-like, so many who would gladly do things for the sake of others. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, he says, Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. Can I say the same to you? My heart delights in the love that you show to others. Let's never tire of it. But if anything, do it more so. Keep loving each other. Keep loving each other. Keep loving each other. Keep finding creative ways to do that, but also to live out the words and the works of Jesus. Keep reaching out to those that don't speak our language. Keep reaching out to those that don't love us back. Keep being transformed. Keep seeking transformation in yourself and therefore in others. Let me encourage you that God has always been pleased to choose the weak things of this world. He chose Abraham, a man with no children, and he wanted to bless the world through that one man and his descendants. And when Abraham's descendants multiplied, they were slaves in Egypt. That's who God chose as his people, slaves. People who were in bondage, that they would be led by Moses, a man who had been a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years. And then when God chose a king, he chose the youngest son of Jesse. Jesse hadn't even bothered calling David in from the sheepfold. Jesse obviously wasn't expecting David to be chosen. Then God chose Ezra and he chose Nehemiah. And all for who all their standing in the Persian court in the grand scheme of things, they weren't that important in and of themselves. But they dared to trust and believe in God and would we dare to believe that God chooses people like us and he chooses churches like us for the manifestation of his glory and the advancement of his kingdom here on earth let's be those that embrace all that God has done and we embrace our opportunity to steward and to proclaim the gospel and who are able to join Paul as he did in boasting in his weakness, because in and through that, we realise that we're dependent and we realise that his, it's in his strength and as we worship and serve him and serve him alone, it releases the fragrance of the favour of God upon us. What's, what's Nehemiah been all about? It's really this, that those that love God and love his kingdom, that they will study the Bible, they will pray and do everything they can to advance the gospel and seeking to draw others in to doing the same. Would it be so amongst us? Would it be like that amongst us? Why don't, why don't we just pray? Let's just spend some time allowing the spirit of the living God to minister to us. Lord, we welcome you. We welcome you. Lord, we want to be transformed. You are the potter, we're the clay. Come and do it again, Lord. We soften our hearts. I, I pray for those where you've hardened your hearts to transformation. Soften again. Soften again before the presence of the living God. Come willingly and humbly 
sometimes transformation can be almost seasonal. You know, we can get stuck in dry places and a rut, and they can all form us and shape us. But sometimes it's just so refreshing to say, Lord, change me. I guarantee you'll answer that prayer. Lord, soften me. You know, I, I think there's a danger in some of what I said that I make some of you feel guilty for having, for finding yourself in <coughs> seasons or places of luxury. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Don't. If that is a guilt you're feeling or carrying from this, please let that not be. That's not right. That's not what I've tried to say. But for some of you, I believe being in the city has been a hard place and you've carried hardships and burdens as a result. I just want to pray that they're lifted from you now, that there is a freedom from them now. Don't let the 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 the, the pain or the cost obscure, obscure the call or the anointing or the provision. Jesus, bring a freedom. Bring an anointing balm, a healing balm to that, I pray. And Lord, now do with us what you want to do whether you want to take this series in our heart, <clears throat> where you want to speak to us in the depths of our souls, Lord, we welcome you. Come and minister, come and manifest your presence among us. I'm going to leave you with the Lord ministers to you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you have a good week, but the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace.